You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. What I'm clear about is the next general election is in 2022, and I think it's right that another party leader takes us into that general election. Will the UK have agreed its Brexit deal before there are cities on Mars? My guests Peter Goodman and Mary Dajewski will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the potentially de-escalating US-China trade war, Vladimir Putin's hip-hop problem, and the hitherto unlikely location of Ethiopia furnishing some good news on the press freedom front. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Peter Goodman, the global economic correspondent for The New York Times, and Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian. Welcome both, and we will discuss... Start? Start. We will start by discussing Brexit, as the people of these islands are now apparently doomed to do until the sun dies. Yesterday, the hardcore Brexit wing of the just-about-governing Conservative Party staged a leadership challenge against Prime Minister Theresa May and failed, potentially condemning her to keep the job for another year. May has resumed her inexplicable gallivanting around European capitals, still apparently convinced that if she asks the same question often enough, she will eventually receive an answer she likes. Meanwhile, the Tories' anti-May faction, the European Research Group, now trading as the gang that couldn't shoot straight, have resumed plotting and whining. Mostly whining. Um, Mary, you are at this table representing the people of Great Britain. Um, (laughs) Please explain to us, was there any imaginable point to yesterday at all? In retrospect, there was absolutely none because we're back exactly where we started. We've got Theresa May still as Prime Minister. She's still leader of the Conservative Party. She's still not got any hope of getting a majority to get her so-called deal um, through the House of Commons. So now we're absolutely stuck. I mean, the only good thing that's come out of today, so far as I can see, is that everybody seems to have accepted that there will be no new vote on the delayed vote from earlier this week until January. Now, this gives all of us, um, including the MPs and including poor beleaguered Theresa May, um, it gives us all a couple of weeks without having to think about will this vote happen or will it or not. Theresa May beleaguered, that's a step up from embattled. That's that, that. That's quite serious. Um, Peter, you are among uh, the coterie of foreign correspondents here in the UK who therefore has to explain to other people uh, what is going on with Brexit. Um, at this point, how difficult are you finding it? Oh, it's riveting. I mean, you know, this is this is the longest running, most hated show in the history of theater. Uh, and but many people have seen it, uh, and they're still trying to figure out what it means. You know, look, I just explained to them simply that Brexit means Brexit, and that no one has any idea what that means. Uh, but that seems to be fine. The the political uh, system keeps on going. I mean, in truth, the metaphor that we use in the states is the game of chicken. Does that exist across our cultures, or is that really uh, an yeah, it's, it, it's a, it, variations on it. This this is basically driving two tractors at each other at increasing exactly. velocity down. I, I think I may be channeling Footloose. This here. this is this is exactly right. I mean, it does seem pretty clear that the only play Theresa May has had from the beginning is come up with a deal that inevitably everyone will hate, and sure enough, 
mission accomplished. Everyone hates this deal. Uh, but by the end, as we get close to the cliff edge, uh, the, we'll find ourselves looking at a choice between this god-awful deal that everyone hates versus going over the cliff uh, and the ensuing unknown incalculable chaos that will result. Now, of course, the problem is that the ERG, who did get caned pretty well uh, last night, are playing a game where they seem to want to go over the cliff because that's the only way they can really administer the hard Brexit. And now even those in favor of a second referendum are hoping that the closer we get to the cliff, the only rescue from the cliff uh, is a second referendum. So you now have different parties with totally different objectives, all sort of bet betting that the longer this goes on, the more their faction uh, will uh, be likely to win. That's a problem. I was hearing a lot of cliff there. Um, Mary, uh, Peter mentions there the, the second referendum, uh, which is a potential way out of this, although it's also a potential way back into this, because I, I'm, I'm already resigned in advance to the idea that a second referendum will return a remain vote by a smaller margin than the, <laughs> than the original leave vote, uh, which would just be the punchline this, exactly. whole, this whole thing then deserves. Then we'd be in for a third referendum. Well, exactly. But um, at, at that point, I, I, I am at that point literally going to join the, the list of people vowing to leave the country. But is the ground actually shifting on a, a the idea of something drastic occurring, a, a second referendum and or a, a unilateral revocation of Article 50, which the European Court of Justice has helpfully confirmed this week the UK can actually do. The UK can just say, uh, we've had a bit of a think about this and we're not going to do it. Well, I think there are problems with both those scenarios because I think that they are seen, as it were, through the rose-tinted spectacles of Remainers, um, and they do not I, I go would, down. I would, I would characterise well. myself more among just the at this point the please make this stoppers. <laughs> well, I think there are other ways of um, please getting this stopped, um, and I think there is one which is interesting and one which is less interesting. The less interesting one is to throw up everybody his hands in despair and call a new election. Now, that has the risk that you're going to end up with Labour and Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, um, the risk at least as seen by some, um, but it might possibly be a risk worth taking because in the country at large, at the moment, Theresa May is seen as more popular than Jeremy Corbyn. Of course, the situation in the Commons is different. Um, we, we should the, note for our, our foreign listeners that both are being consistently outpolled by don't know. This is, 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 by, is by far the country's preferred, right. preferred prime minister at the moment. Now, the other alternative, um, which is interesting and tantalising, was sort of hinted at by the prime minister after she won her vote yesterday, which incidentally is being presented as having lost the vote by the... Um, extreme Brexiteers who called it. Um, but putting that on one side, um, the interesting one is, as they say, reaching out to um, MPs in the Labour Party and other parties with a view to having a sort of temporary, um, as they say, government of national unity. Um, and the idea is that if you could cobble together a coalition of enough MPs who would approve the compromise bill 
maybe slightly tweaked from how it is at the moment, you might actually get it through the House of Commons. Um, but of course, that's a long shot. The British don't particularly like um, coalitions. They've never had something called a government of national unity, except a time of extreme crisis. So um, on the other hand, you could say what you're looking at actually is a time of extreme crisis. I think it's just about possible that we will end up discussing Brexit again uh, one day. So let's 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 move on and we'll cast an eye over the front lines of the ongoing US-China trade war. An exciting apparent subplot has emerged in recent weeks with the arrest in Canada of a Chinese executive at the request of the United States and the apparent retaliatory detentions of two Canadians by China. Not for the first or doubtless last time, US President Donald Trump has demonstrated a dubious understanding of how anything actually works by suggesting that he could intervene in the case of Meng Wanzhou, thereby explicitly linking the two things and or admitting that the two things are linked. Um, Peter, there was a sort of truce, I thought, declared in Buenos Aires at the G20 summit in this trade war. Um, is is that the case? Where are we with this? What, what Give us a situation report. Well, as in all things Trump, it's very difficult to differentiate the uh, reality television aspect of this, which is, you know, programming for tonight, for tomorrow's market cycle versus uh, a longer term strategy. And yeah, it's true at the G20, uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, had a meal with President Donald Trump, and they emerged saying that they uh, were going to uh, put a freeze on new tariffs. Uh, Trump soon tweeted that the Chinese were going to lift tariffs uh, on American-made automobiles. Uh, that seemed maybe not to be so true, but in any event, the markets bought into this idea that uh, a thaw is at hand and th there was going to be 90 days for the two countries to work out their difficulties and, and uh, agree on some sort of longer-term trade deal. The problem is that it does not at all seem clear that there's a governing strategy in the White House. Uh, there's a battle for uh, the president's decision-making, which changes by the day, sometimes by the hour. Uh, now, on the one hand, this is a president who doesn't spend a lot of time looking at reports or data, but one data point he seems to care about a lot is uh, the trajectory of the stock market. And the stock market does not like this trade war. So uh, Trump really likes to give us the impression that there's a truce. On the other hand, he's surrounded by hawks for whom the trade war is but one element of a much broader campaign to contain China, the emerging superpower. And uh, the hawks really want to do harm to China. And in that context, this president seems to be willing to absorb the economic costs uh, as the cost of stopping China from rising. Those two things are always in opposition. So for the moment, it looks like there's a truce, but tomorrow the Hawks could get the upper hand and we could be back to war footing. Uh, Mary, do you get the sense that, do I mean, Donald Trump famously uh, once said that trade wars are good and easy to win. Um, but does he actually want to win in any meaningful sense, or does he just enjoy conflict and chaos, whether that's a deliberate strategy or just something he's instinctively attracted to? No, I tend to think that he really does want to win. Um, but I think the definition of winning is rather flexible. And so he puts down very often a sort of initial opening bid, which sounds completely outrageous and pretty much on the on the brink of declaring war. Um, and then gradually, you know, there's some sort of communication and things get scaled back and then eventually some sort of deal is done. And one of the things that interests me 
very much about this whole saga is actually the element of um, the um, financial boss for Huawei because Meng Wenzhou um, sitting in Vancouver um, it is extraordinary I mean it seemed to me when I heard that she'd first been arrested um, and was intended to be um, indicted and ex- extradited to the US that this was an extraordinary thing for Canada to do because it seemed to me that it was very un-Canadian. It also seemed to me that it was an incredibly high risk um, because she is not not exactly the most junior sort of um, Chinese anywhere in the world. And that it seemed to me that it was inviting um, an equal and opposite response from China, which is actually starting to happen in that they seem to have arrested and detained two Canadians for a start. And what we're looking at is a sort of um, mirror image hostage situation as to, um, you know, everybody's squaring up eventually, presumably, for some sort of exchange. But are the Canadians going to extradite um, Hmong to the US? Um, If they are, what's going to happen then? Because that is going to up the stakes incredibly. And then you're going to start getting prominent Americans getting detained in China. You know, everybody plays this game and it's very, very dangerous. Uh, Can Trump actually intervene in a case like this, Peter, as far as we know? Or is is he just saying words again? Oh, I mean, my colleagues had a piece uh, this morning suggesting that it's legal. It's a terrible precedent. Uh, If you believe in the rule of law, I mean, it's a pretty bad look to have your core ally, the Canadians, arrest this woman. I mean, she's the chief uh, financial officer of one of the largest, most powerful companies in one of the largest, most powerful countries on earth. Uh, and uh, put her in jail and and begin extradition proceedings. I mean, for the president of the United States uh, to come out, I mean, this is is an office that's supposed to be uh, a a sort of uh, exemplar of uh, liberal democracy, rule of law. I mean, to come out and say, well, actually, you know, never mind the criminal charges and all the things I've said about the Iranian sanctions and national security. If we need to use her as a bargaining chip, you know, we'll, we'll intervene. Uh, I mean, that that's extraordinary. What was also extraordinary was that the markets rallied dramatically on this news, which <laughs> yes, shows... because this is the sort of thing that is actually done, right. but nobody actually talks about that, it. And they right. certainly don't talk about it in advance. I mean, it shows that the people thing. in control of money don't put a great value on the rule of law. They put enormous value on the ability of uh, powerful figures to manage problems, in this case, to manage a crisis that this president actually created. I mean, back to Mary's point, the pattern here with Trump seems to be you create a crisis out of something that was stable. You threaten to withdraw from NAFTA or you gin up a crisis with the North Koreans by insulting the North Korean leader. Uh, you you arrest, uh, in this case, uh, a, a top executive at Huawei. Then you have some talk. You have some threats and then you manufacture the appearance of a deal. You declare victory and you end up pretty much where you started while you're on the cover of some news weekly declaring victory. So, Mary, just to follow that thought of yours up, do you, th- do you think this is basically Donald Trump saying the quiet part out loud again? Well, I mean, the, the, the very strange thing about this is that I think it was it was today, it may have been late yesterday, um, there was speculation that the whole thing had actually been set up by Trump, that basically it had been 
originated by him, the idea of essentially taking a senior Chinese hostage, essentially, and using her as a bargaining chip against the trade negotiations. Now, you know, that would seem a very um, conspiratorial and far-fetched idea. But the trouble is that the more you think about it, the, the, the harder it is actually to remove it from your mind, because you can't avoid the impression that just maybe that was the origins of this. Well, we're just a few weeks removed from the president saying that, yeah, okay, maybe this Washington Post columnist Khashoggi really was murdered, that's what the CIA says, by the Saudi prince. But, you know, they buy a lot of weapons from American defense contractors, so that's what's more important. I mean, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. The president Mm -hmm. said that directly. So now that we know that things are that transactional, it's very difficult to to look at this and not assume that everything's transactional. It was also spectacular for the British because the British had been very, very quiet about the Khashoggi case. Um, And really, Donald Trump said it all. They didn't have to add anything. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Peter Goodman and Mary Dijewski. Coming up next, Vladimir Putin discovers hip-hop. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials, from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, The Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Melista. With me are Peter Goodman and Mary Dijewski. Now, underpinning much modern popular culture is a kind of nostalgic yearning for a time when popular music was perceived as upsetting and subversive, rather than, as it now usually is, something that presidents and prime ministers are desperately keen to associate themselves with. There might, therefore, seem reason to be jealous of the hip-hop artists of Russia, but the repression they are starting to attract in some quarters is as real as it is ridiculous. Rappers are increasingly finding their concerts cancelled, their videos blocked, and themselves arrested on occasion. Um, Mary, why would the the Kremlin be untowardly troubled by Russian youngsters getting into hip-hop? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, just in response to what you've said, I would say all that is true except minus the Kremlin. (laughs) Because when you look at all these reports and everything that's been happening about banning concerts and sort of locking up and detaining rap artists and hip-hop artists and goodness knows who else, when you look at the geography of it, it's sort of around the the province the big province, provincial cities of russia so far as i could see it hasn't touched moscow and it hasn't touched st petersburg the biggest cases the most prominent cases have been in places like krasnodar and rostov in the south and this said to me that there was at least that there were two possibilities one of them was that it was local officials um, getting above themselves and thinking that this was the policy. Um, And the other one was that it was a sort of tryout, maybe, from the Kremlin to see how effective or it could be to try and suppress this sort of stuff and whether the methods would be effective. Now... 
the second part of this story is that there seems to have been a, a, a sequel come down actually from the Kremlin to say, hey, lay off this, um, which is very peculiar um, because that is exactly the message you wouldn't expect because the, the the problem has been, as you said, that the the lyrics have become increasingly politicised and increasingly um, sort of suspect in the sense of um, what used to be called in the uh, old Soviet days, um, socialist morality. So sex, drugs and all the rest of it. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to divine where the Kremlin actually stands on this. Yes, the material is sensitive. Yes, some of it challenges politically, some of it challenges socially. But it seems um, that the Kremlin has now gone into reverse position um, and sent down instructions to the deep provinces to say, well, maybe this is not what we should be doing. It may therefore just be, Peter, a story of, of, of small town police chiefs not understanding these weird rocking sounds of the kids. It's Footloose again, isn't it? it, it, it it's, it's, it's becoming the film that's explaining literally everything. Two Footloose re- references in one show. That is incredible. Um, I haven't seen the remake, so I don't know if those were germane to the, the reincarnated Footloose. <laughs> the fact, I mean, look, we, we, we don't know what the answer is to that good question that Mary's teeing up, but I think it's fair to assume that if people in control, either at the center or the local level, are viewing these rappers as a threat, that's a sign of weakness. I mean, the, 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 the reign of Vladimir Putin has been all about uh, building up the nationalist uh, aspiration, again, projecting Russian power, hearkening back to the days when Russia was was feared and, and respected. That's all about, you know, outward positions, going and, and taking the Crimea, uh, running the proxy war uh, in the eastern Ukraine, projecting power into Syria. But meanwhile, you have large numbers of people, especially young people who are unemployed. You have infrastructure crumbling. You have uh, education falling behind uh, the rest of the world. And uh, we live in the age of the Internet. So plenty of people in Russia understand uh, Russia's position in the world. And, and we've seen this movie before when when people want to dissent in a place where there isn't uh, freedom and where there's risk. Uh, it's the artists who usually find, you know, coded uh, ways of um, uh, of expressing their their grievances and their unhappiness with the center. And, and clearly some people in positions of authority get that and and see uh, in these rappers uh, something potentially dangerous. I think that the um, the rapping and especially the political rap, I mean, it's always very, very interesting to watch um, and to listen to the words and see what they pick on. And some of the things that they're picking on are um, inequality, privilege, um, some of the very similar things, in fact, in, uh, uh, as there were in the, in, in the last years of the Soviet Union. Um, but I think there's another aspect, too, which in some ways brings it closer to what some of what we're seeing, um, at least in, in London. And, uh, and Britain, which is that at least some of the bands seem to relate to, there have been two recent um, rather American-style shootings in, in, in Russia, one of them in the south and one of them actually in the far north. Um, and it seems that some of this attempt to suppress things is because they see it as related to youth culture and that sort of music. 
And of course, when you look at the, there's been a whole hue and cry in London over the rise in deaths by stabbing and the relationship that some draw between youth violence and what's called drill music. And so what we've had here has been the Metropolitan Police coming out and saying that they think there ought to be much tighter restrictions on things like drill music and people who do drill music and certain types of heavy metal and all that sort of thing. So the idea of, as it were, relating these things and trying to clamp down on the one in order to try and um, prevent the other, you know, it's not unique to Russia. We're seeing it here too. And it's very tempting. Very far from unique. Uh, But let us conclude tonight with a good news story, because as of right now, so far as it is possible to tell, there are no journalists in prison in Ethiopia. This has been far from common in recent years. Indeed, Ethiopia has been deservedly infamous as one of the most enthusiastic jailers of reporters in the world. The emptying of the cells is one of a number of reforms enacted under the newish government of Abiy Ahmed and his Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, who presumably maintain their hold on power by taking all the names available for political parties. Um, Peter, how big a step is this? I mean, it's it's a good thing, obviously, but in the, in the context of Ethiopia, in the context of Africa generally, how important is it? Well, it's definitely important. I mean, it, it's, it's very significant uh, that there are now no journalists behind bars in Ethiopia. On the other hand, it's, it's sort of hard to know what sort of chilling effect the legacy has had. I mean, to to grow up and work in a country where, you know, just uh, as recently as the fall, uh, the government managed to shut down the mobile internet uh, during uh, a time of declared emergency. Uh, you know, people don't just have to worry about being thrown uh, behind bars to do their jobs when their when their job is uh, discovering inconvenient truths and and sharing them with with the public. They they have to worry about their livelihoods. Uh, there are all sorts of ways uh, to put pressure uh, on the press, short of throwing people in jail. So you know, it's it's hard to know without being on the ground, but uh, it, it could simply be that the regime has gotten a little more sophisticated about how to control the message in Ethiopia. It is the case, as Peter points out, isn't it, Mary, that it will take a while, I guess, for journalists to feel safe uh, in pursuing their trade uh, as as they prefer to when you know that yeah, the government that let you out of jail can presumably put you back in again. No, absolutely. And I think um, self-censorship is something which is very, very difficult um, often to detect. Um, also, we don't know, or at least it, I don't think it was said, um, how many of of the journalists who either have been in jail or potentially could have found themselves in jail actually took another route and simply left the country um, because Ethiopia in the recent past has had a very high rate um, of people leaving the country and conditions there, I think until quite recently, have been judged by many countries in Europe, including the UK, to be such that most um, people who claim asylum um, who come from Ethiopia are generally not returned because of the conditions that they face there. Um, Peter, we have seen this week Time magazine uh, award its person of the year to what they called the Guardians, which was a, a, a representative selection of uh, embattled and worse journalists, right. among them uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, th- th- this is obviously freighted with a certain amount of wishful thinking because it's a question being asked of a journalist by another journalist. But hmm. are, are we potentially witnessing a, a slightly dawning understanding of why a free press matters? 
Uh, I I do think there are large numbers of people who are discovering uh, that a a free press matters, given that, again, I mean, the president of the United States, a country that has presented itself as a kind of city upon a hill for liberal liberal democracy, regularly calls journalists enemies of the people. Uh, Advertisements for my own publication, sadly, but, you know, we've seen incredible subscription growth. So is The Washington Post. Uh, most of the of the top shelf media entities with paywalls are getting more and more people to pay. And it's not just that uh, people like Trump, Victor Orban, you know, clashing uh, with, with, with the press. Uh, it's also that we understand that, you know, Facebook is not an honest broker uh, for information, that uh, they're much more interested in page views and figuring out what we like to share than actually educating us and preventing us from stumbling on things that are patently untrue and potentially catering to hateful impulses. So, you know, we live in a moment where thinking people recognize that journalism is, is is risky. It costs a lot of money. You have to pay for it. And, and that that is a positive thing. Mary, what do you think? Do you, do you feel like we're being slightly less disesteemed than previously? <laughs> well, I think um, if I could be so bold as to speak on behalf of the British journalism, I would say we <laughs> carry the badge of en- enemies, at least of the authorities, um, with a degree of pride. Um, I would also just slightly caution um, that, yes, the um, Nobel Peace Prize, yes, also, just in a more parochial way, the Chatham House Prize this year also went to International Journalist Organization. Um, But there is a sense in which I sort of detect that it's rather fashionable to single out journalists and say these are the sort of heroes of the hour. Um, And I think the moment that happens journalists should actually be quite careful. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Peter Goodman and Mary Dijewski, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Nick Moniz and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.